long years ago, we made a tryst with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new. It is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger cause of humanity. Hello everyone and welcome to India Colonized, a podcast dedicated to South Asia's modern and contemporary history. I'm your co-host Trithika Chauhan and you're listening to Guftagu, a special series where we discuss and engage with varied authors and scholars of South Asian history. In this episode of Guftagu, we have with us Riaz Deen, author of the book Mapping the Great Game, Explorers, Spies and Maps in 19th Century Asia. Riaz Deen is an engineer by profession and an independent scholar. He is also a member of the New Zealand Society of Authors and the New Zealand Cartographical Society. As the title suggests, this book is about the extraordinary explorers, spies and map makers who explored the vast regions of Asia against the backdrop of imperial ambitions of powerful players like Russia and Great Britain then. This expedition was at the surface to fill in large portions of the map while spying out the countries for military reasons during the so-called Great Game. Set in four parts and arranged chronologically with five informative maps, this book expands on the relevant political intricacies and the roles played by some adventurous young people like William Moorcroft, William Lambden and his team of cartographers, George Everest and the pundits employed by the Survey of India in undertaking this greatest survey. This interview explores and examines the provided stances in the book along with other broader perspectives on this great exploration. Here's the conversation with Riyaz Deen. Hello and welcome Riyaz to India Colonize, a podcast uh, on colonial India and, and modern India. So it, it was absolutely fun engaging with your book. Um, so before we get into discussing your book, a couple of uh, biographical questions to start with. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, um, a bit about your intellectual journey and uh, the people or the books that have influenced you to write the book? Okay. Well, thanks for that, Omar, and um, uh, a very big hello to um, to all your listeners wherever you are. Um, I'm sitting here in New Zealand, um, and and have lived here now for seven years. Um, so that hasn't always been my home. Um, I was actually born and raised in in the Fiji Islands, um, which are small islands in the in the South Pacific, um, and regionally very close to Australia and New Zealand. Um, so um, I guess the other the, the other thing of note is that I'm of Indian origin, and um, you know I think part of the huge Indian diaspora that during the late 1800s and early 1900s, you know, left India in our case um, 
my forefathers left to as indentured laborers to work the sugarcane fields in Fiji. And, um, and so we've been in Fiji for many generations. And to be honest, I have no family links in India as such. But uh, yeah, so I grew up and did, did um, my high schooling in, in Fiji and then came to New Zealand to actually study chemical engineering. And after graduating as a chemical engineer, I, I went back to Fiji and worked there for a number of years um, manufacturing. And I was working for a multinational. And so they transferred me across to Australia, which is the other sort of very large country in our region. And um, I then lived in Australia for about 20 odd years. And uh, my family grew up there. And um, yeah, and, um, and so worked for many multinationals during that time, mostly in, in manufacturing and in, then in business um, improvement and became a business improvement specialist, which got me through to the US. And, I, and then I worked to the US for a while with uh, some of our subsidiaries there and then to Europe. And then I decided to quit all of that and um, come back to New Zealand. Um, because as it turns out that my, my wife, whom I met when I was here in university, is a New Zealander. So now we've been living in New Zealand. And, um, you know, when I, when I came back to New Zealand, I was looking to do something different. And um, I decided to write a book, <laughs> which is the book that was always in my head and the book that, um, that we're now going to talk about. And, and, and I guess um, maybe to add to that, it took me the first year, took a year off and, um, and worked on that sort of full time, learning to write and learning to research. Um, I came very late to writing and research, you know, when I was in my mid fifties. Um, and then, um, then I started working part time in New Zealand while I continued researching the book and, and finishing it, and which was published in, in late 2019. So here we are. So um, what influenced you to basically take up a project such as this from, from a background of, say, chemical engineering, having worked almost a good amount of your life in the field and then coming to um, coming to a field that, that might have been completely different and alien? Yes, completely different is right over. Um, so I guess I've always loved books and I've always read a lot. In fact, everybody in my family read a lot. And then um, later on, I started to realize that I have a real um, interest and fascination for exploration and writings about exploration and particularly about the exploration and mapping of Asia during the 19th century. And um, so one of the things I started to do was I started to collect a lot of old books and maps, particularly of Central Asia and of India. And one of the things I did um, a little while ago, I mean, other than, other than having backpacked through all of India for about three months when I'd finished university, and I started in what was then the city of Chen, uh, Madras, now Chennai, and worked my way all the way up to Kashmir and, um, you know, and really loved India. Um, then later on, I backpacked the Silk Road. So I started in Istanbul and worked my way through all the different countries, including all the stands, you know, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, down through Afghanistan, and then into China. And so I really got to see a lot of Central Asia. And I got to see a lot of the area that my current book is based, and including what is known as the roof of the world, uh, which is the Pamirs and the Hindu Kush. Um, given my love for books, and I was collecting a lot of books on, 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 on the exploration and mapping of Central Asia and India, I thought, well, I had this story in my head. And, and if, when you asked me the question, what were the books that influenced me? Well, there was a book um, called The Pundits, which I read. Um, it was actually published in Kentucky, and I happened to be living and working in Kentucky in the U.S. And I was fascinated by that book. And I was fascinated by these native Indian explorers called the Pundits. And by the way, they're not to be mistaken for the Kashmiri Pandits, 
These were the pundits who worked for the Survey of India during the mid-1800s who helped explore and map the borders outside of India to the north, particularly Tibet, Afghanistan, and what was then Turkestan. So I read this book about the pundits, and I was just fascinated by them. But the other thing that really struck me was that they are so little known outside of um, India. And then later on, I realized that even within India, it's, you know, they really can well be termed the sort of the classic unsung heroes of the British Raj. So I decided then to, to write that book. And so I started off with the pundits, and I realized that to write a book about the pundits, readers would not would not really appreciate all their work unless you wrote about the employer, the Survey of India. And because the Survey of India had mapped India and, 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 and the countries to India's north, you know, that was, that was something I really enjoyed as well. So I wanted to write about the mapping as well. But even, even those two things weren't in themselves enough, because to really appreciate what the pundits did, you had to understand what was the event that was the backdrop to what was happening, which was the great game. And so in the end, I wrote about those three things. You know, I wrote about the pundits and the employers, the Survey of India, but within the context of the great game. And, um, and so I wrote the book in four parts, of which, you know, two of the parts are with the great game starting and ending, and then about the pundits and about the Survey of India. So hopefully that gives you a background. Yeah, definitely it does. So um, could you tell our audience the themes of your book and what themes it uh, explores in general? Um, I, I, think, I think there are a number of themes. Um, the first, I think, if we start with the pundits, I really wanted to give or help give the pundits the recognition they deserve, not, o- not only within Indian readers, but outside as well too. And I make the, make the point in my book that, um, for example, perhaps the person who was one of the greatest of the pundits, Nayan Singh, um, you know, he won the gold medal of the Royal Geographic Society from London. And at the time, during the 1800s, which was really the age of exploration, you know, when explorers stood on a pedestal higher than almost anybody. Today, we, we think of, you know, sporting heroes, especially football stars, for example, or, you know, top tennis players or golfers. Well, in those days, explorers were, were, were the people that, that Victorian age looked up to more than anybody else. And this was the age of, of Livingston and Stanley and, and um, you know, and then later on, people like Scott. The really great explorer as well. Nain Singh won the gold medal for the Royal Geographic Society, um, and yet he is barely mentioned in many books about the great explorers. Um, and so, one of the things I tried to do with the book was to show, and 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 I make the statement that you know when you take the pundits as a whole, and there were about there were about twenty five pundits. Nobody really even knows how many there were because there were many that either either disappearing into obscurity, really. Um, were engaged and were killed before, before the, you know, the names were recorded. So what I tried to make the point was that as taken as a group, that those roughly 25-odd pundits you know, constitute the greatest group of explorers the world has seen. I'm not talking about individuals, I'm talking about as a group. And there was no other group like them. If you look at the, if you look at history, um, especially during the during the 18th, 19th century, um, you know they, they were a unique group. And so I tried to I tried to tell that story. So that's certainly one theme. The other theme then was really about the Survey of India because what the Survey of India achieved was was quite incredible. And particularly, um, I talk about the Great Trigonometrical Survey of India, which again is little known, be it India or around the world. Um, and when when the when the two East India Company officers, you know, who ran the Great Trigonometrical Survey, 
when the work they finished, which took them about 40 years, which was to measure the, you know, the great arc of Meridian across India, you know, it was, it was labeled as one of the most stupendous works in the history of science. And it truly was. I mean, um, you know, they measured the shape of the planet around, around the subcontinent of India. And that project, other than taking them four decades, you know, cost more in lives and more in money than many contemporary Indian wars. So, so that was another, another really, I suppose, important sort of um, story to share. And then the third, of course, was the Great Game, which, which is much, much better known. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I won't go into that so much other than to say that you know, to appreciate the pundits and to appreciate the survey of India, you really needed to understand what was happening with, with the Great Game. Yeah, definitely. Context to whatever we are exploring is is so highly important. Um, so, you know, how what was the kind of journey that uh, the book really took? Like, from you starting to write the book, looking for sources, verifying them. Um, you know, and and the second part of the question would be especially because uh, you know, uh, the, without a formal background of say in in spaces such as historiography, uh, and you as an independent researcher, what might uh, what what were the kind of challenges that you might have faced um, for your work, and uh, maybe even at publication levels? Well, maybe if I take the first part of your question in terms of the challenges I faced, you're right, because I, I started cold. You know, I hadn't written anything before that. And um, the only, I suppose, advantage I had was that one, you know, coming, coming to writing late, at least I was able to take the year off because there was an enormous amount of research involved. You know, I mean, writing, writing um, nonfiction and, and, and history, you know, is different from writing a fictional novel only in that, there's an enormous amount of research involved. And, and so, I mean, of that one year that I spent full time, you know, two thirds of it would have been on research. The positive was also that because I had been collecting a lot of books and maps about Central Asia and India, you know, I, I already had a lot of the material. So, yes, to answer that question, the other, the other piece other than the research, which I really loved, I mean, research is the best bit out of, out, out of all, all of it. I had to teach myself how to write. You know, I mean, I'd like to think that I had a little bit of talent to start with, but it took many iterations and, you know, and, and, and you know, there was help and, and, I, and I sought professional help in terms of getting manuscript assessments as well. And so all of that after my first year, the next three years, I, I, I spent refining the manuscript. But more importantly, to answer your second question in terms of the journey was to try and find a publisher. And, and that is very difficult. I mean, anybody who's written a first book and has it published will know, um, particularly if in my case, because the book really lent itself to trying to get uh, what is a traditional publisher rather than self-publishing, because to try and get it across, you know, it, it was a, a, a book that could sell across the many countries of the world. And um, to be able to do that, yeah, I, I, needed, I needed to find a publisher. So I went through many, many, many rejections. <laughs> and um, you know, and all of that was getting feedback and, and then trying and trying again, particularly, you know, first of all, just trying to get an agent and then later on to get a publisher. And, and I think one of the things I was most happy with was that when I did get a publisher, actually, I got two publishers um, at the same time. One of them was in India because I've always felt that the book's natural home was India because 
it was centered around India and, and I really tried hard to get published in India. And of course, I was really happy when Penguin Random House, you know, which is the biggest publisher on the subcontinent by far. I mean, I mean, they took on my book, but at the same time, I was able to get a publisher in the UK as well, which was Casemate. And so they've published the book um, and their publishers in the UK and the US as well. So, you know, from going from a point of thinking I'd never get it published over a number of years to finding two publishers was um, was a huge bonus. <laughs> yeah, it must have been an exciting journey. <clears throat> um, so, uh, you know, coming outside, as, as I mentioned, as an independent researcher, um, what might have been your challenges that you felt were would have been different to your peers, say, who belong to the formal field of um, say historiography or uh, people who wrote about explorers the same well i think i um i thought a lot about where to pitch the book and one of the things i came to sort of early on and 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 it's something that you know you need you need to sort out early on was who was my target audience and and i realized that i wanted to write popular history and not an academic piece of work because, well, one, you know, I'm, I'm not an academic myself, but more in terms of trying to tell the story about the pundits and, and about, about, for example, the great um, trigonometrical survey of India. These, I thought, were really popular topics that could be popular topics, you know, that were very forgotten. So the book is, is nonfiction and historical, but really targeted at the general reader, you know, as popular history, which, which I, by the way, found very satisfying also. All right, that's wonderful. Um, so one of the questions that we usually ask is like uh, most of the authors tend to continue their research after having published the books and, uh, you know, they they do find something quite intriguing and interesting later on after the book has been published. Uh, has there been any such journey for you where you find something uh, even more interesting that you wish was part of your book or, you know, uh, was probably not maybe due to publication restrictions or anything of that sort? Uh, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I think perhaps the only um, thing that I, 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 I would have liked to do was maybe to have expanded more on topics like the pundits, you know, because I spoke about really a handful of pundits, maybe three important ones, but, they, you know, they were roughly about 25 odd. And I would have really liked to talk a lot more about the lesser known pundits. And at some one day, perhaps I'll, I'd love to write a book about the lesser known pundits. But I think with any of these books, you know, because I was writing for popular history and I had a very clear target audience in my mind, that also determined the length of the book. And I realized that, you know, I mean, for, for a popular history and for the general reader, anything more than about 300 pages was going to be too much. So it really meant I had to try and prioritize. Um, and um, yeah, so I guess um, in a way, my, my, my regret is not being able to, to write more. And maybe a second book then. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so could you tell um, the audience a bit about uh, the coinage of the word, the great game, and uh, give a little background for those who are not aware of the great oh. game? So the great game was was an event in a way in history, which was played out really during the 1800s. And what, what, what it was about was Imperial Russia and Great Britain about their rivalry over the influence of Central Asia. And, and it was, I suppose, more than rivalry because in that time, Imperial Russia 
kept expanding and expanding its territory and gobbling up what was really known as Western Turkestan at the time. The countries today that are Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, and they took over that Western part of Turkestan and called it Russian Turkestan. The British for their part, you know, their jewel in the crown was India and, and at all costs they would, they would protect India, who's, you know, who's um, the revenue from, from which was just huge for the British, British economy. Um, and, and so the, Britain was always worried that, that the ultimate aim of Imperial Russia was not only to take over Western Turkestan, but then take Afghanistan and ultimately the, the main prize being India. Whether that's true or not is, um, is debated in the book. But so that's what that's what the great game was about was the strategic rivalry for Central Asia and possibly for India. So the way the way that the term or the phrase the great game came about well was was a, a captain called Arthur Connolly was writing in 1840 and in a letter he um, he sort of lamented um, to his friend that he would also like to be part of this 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 sort of um, political adventure in a way and and he called it you know he said you're part of a great game a noble game and 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 those words the great game that's the earliest it can almost be traced back now as it turned out um, there was a very famous book written by Rudyard Kipling um, called Kim which is perhaps you know, one of the best loved English language books. And, um, and Kipling measure, uh, mentions the great game a number of times. And he kind of romanticized the great game. And this was at a time where, in, you know, um, during the Victorian age, as I said, explorers were really thought of very highly. And, and this whole idea of, of, you know, sort of exploring and fighting in the wilds of Central Asia just captured the imagination of, of much of not only the British, but, 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 but others as well, too. So that's what the great game was about. And by the way, the Russians, they had their own term for it, and they called it the Tournament of Shadows. And actually, both those terms, the great game and the Tournament of Shadows, I mean, they're euphemistic terms, but they kind of capture what did happen, because in the end, the two sides never came to war, although they came close. And then later on in, in modern history, um, historians look back and think that the whole great game was kind of exaggerated, and the fears that each side had were kind of amplified and, you know mentioned the words in the book suspicion begat suspicion so so their suspicions drove their actions but in the end you know were they justified well history judges that um you know differently um all right so so in 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 this rivalry between um i mean the debatable rivalry between imperial russia and the great britain um how was this the race of uh, geographical exploration of land uh, becoming a priority, how was that becoming uh, a very important tool for them to have uh, an upper hand over each other? Yes, that's that's a that's a great question, and and that that question really is, um, links the great game with the whole piece of the mapping of Central Asia. Because I use a line in my book that you know the first need of an army in a strange land is a reliable map. And in the 1800s, you know, for example, even though the British knew and had mapped within India, all areas like just outside their borders, Afghanistan, Tibet, um, Turkmenistan, uh, Turkestan, these were just uncharted areas. And yet, you know, once the great game got underway, there was Russia um, not only exerting influence over these areas, but then ultimately, you know, annexing them as well too. And so there was this, this massive need 
immediately for maps because they believe that they would, for example, go to war. And yet, even on the, on the borders of, of India, um, which was Afghanistan at the time, um, they knew so little about the country and it wasn't mapped. And also, those countries would not allow the, the, the British, particularly um, Christian Europeans, into, for example, Muslim lands. Well, the Tibetans, for example, wouldn't allow them, you know, in, into their areas as well too. And and if if explorers or map makers came through, they were just killed out of hand. So 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 this whole piece around maps integral towards the great game and 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 and, and the war that both sides believe was sort of inevitable. So so these men who went on behalf of on behalf of, of the two um, great empires. So tell us a bit about the men, these, what do you call as a freely driven administrative uh, scientists who go along with the Great Trigonometrical Survey. <clears throat> and what was this a Great Trigonometrical Survey? Right. And the entire thing about mapping the subcontinent and the area surrounding. Yes. So, you know, I, I um, talked about the first need of an army is a reliable map, but within the borders of India, this was not a strange land to the British. So the British needed to map India for a different reason. Um, and that was because they had this territory that they had to define and defend and exploit. And so the, so there were three surveys that, that the British started as part of what became the Survey of India. And the first and the most important one was the revenue survey, because the British wanted to tax Indian landowners, right? And you can't tax people for the size of the land holdings and 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 they and they produce in terms of the crops that came out of it until you had surveyed the land and knew, for example, the size of land. So there were three surveys that were conducted within India, but the first and the most important one was the revenue survey. And so they needed surveys to be able to do that. There were two other surveys then. The second survey was the topographical survey, which was really around mapping the rivers and streams and settlements on a normal size map. And that was fine as well. But to be able to map all of India, you needed, you needed another survey that sat over those two. And this was the trigonometrical survey. And in time, it became known as the GTS or the Great Trigonometrical Survey. And what it did was map India incredibly accurately. In fact, during that time in the mid 1800s, India was one of the most well-mapped countries in the world you know, following, say, Great Britain and France. And it was because the East India Company had brought British officers across, um, who were military officers, and, and they started the, the mapping of India, particularly through the Great Trigonometrical Survey. And what they did was measure the overall size of India um, and, and, and all the major points, rather than worrying about the settlements and the roads and at that level, or for the revenue survey, which was even more detailed by landholding. So as an example, when the, when the peninsula of India was mapped, starting from what was then Madras, now Chennai, and when it was mapped across, across the Deccan Plateau to the other side, the British realized that the peninsula was 40 miles narrower than what they believed. And, you know, and what, one of the sort of the funnier sides of that was that they believed they'd lost 10,000 square miles of, of territory overnight that they couldn't tax anymore because the peninsula wasn't so wide. But you can just imagine, for example, um, having a map where it's, it's that inaccurate. How then can you start to fit into that? accurately, you know, a, a topographical survey, which, which is by states and by kingdoms, leave alone getting down to by land holding. So um, while these uh, um, uh, people who were carrying out this 
um, Great Technological Survey. Can you tell us a bit about these individuals, maybe a brief story about uh, around these individuals for our audience? Yes, okay. So the Great Trigonometrical Survey was started in 1800. I mean, it was started by a man named William Lambton. And he he was part of the East India Company, as, and, and he was part of the military establishment as well, just as all surveyors were. And so William Lambton, he had come out as a boy from, from the UK, perhaps when he was about 16. Nobody's quite sure of his birthday, but he had two objectives in mind. He wanted to be able to map India at a macro level, at a large level, not at a landholding level. At the same time, what he wanted to do was he wanted to measure the shape of the planet around India. So in the past, um, when people, um, the French, had measured the shape of the planet, they'd measured around the Arctic Circle and, and down south in South America as well. And one of the things they realized was that actually the planet is not a sphere, which is, which is always the assumption, but actually at its poles, it's sort of flattened. You know, the technical term for it is it's an oblate spheroid. But now that made actually a very big difference you know, to the way that latitudes and longitudes were mapped um, at a macro level. So nobody had then measured the shape of the planet around the tropics. And, and this is what Lambton tried to do. And of course, India, being a large landmass and long and sort of and that narrow, in, relatively speaking, he thought he could measure that shape in India. So he put a proposal to, to the East India Company at the time, but he realized that if he talked about measuring the shape of the planet, which is called geodesy, that he doubted if it would get approved. So he focused more on look, saying, look, I want to measure, I want to survey India at a macro level, which is at a trigonometrical level. Uh, level. And what had happened at the time was that in Britain and in France and in Europe at the time, people had realized that really the only way to accurately measure a country at the time or to survey country was through trigonometrical survey. So, so Lambton was saying he wanted to do that within India. So he started the trigonometrical survey and it was so successful that, that it was then labeled the Great Trigonometrical Survey. And then later on, on his death, there was another East India Company officer called George Everest, who took over from Lambton. And between the two of them, over a period of 40 years, they measured the shape of the planet. So starting in what was then Cape Comorin, um, today Kanyakumari, and they went all the way up through to Dehradun and measured, measured the shape of the planet that, at the time. That was only one of the outcomes. The outcome that, it, that the rest of the East India Company wanted was they accurately measured all of India, not only across, for example, you know, the peninsula of India, but 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 really uh, they, they measured across most of India at the time. And of course, at the time, as I said, um, when it was, when the when that was finished, which was called the Great Arc, the Great Meridian Arc, um, it was labeled as one of the most stupendous works in the whole history of science. And it really was something. And today, um, one of those people, you know, is perpetually remembered in the mountain, Mount Everest, um, which was George Everest. And just as an aside uh, um, to mention, as I do in the book, he actually, his name was not pronounced Everest at all. It was Everest. And George would never allow anybody to call him Everest. Um, and yet today, people, people know the mountain. Anywhere in the world, they know the mountain. They still mispronounce it, and yet most people have no idea of the man who, who achieved that single honor. That's, that's amazing. I actually wanted to go down and uh, if we do have time, explore. Uh, I would like you to talk a bit about uh, the life of uh, George Everest and as uh, you know, especially around the story of the Mount Everest. Uh, yes. But before we, we go, something a little more intriguing, I think the most intriguing part of your book, uh, if you can tell our audience about the pundits. 
Yes, okay. Um, so why did the pandits come about? The answer was really simple. So within the borders of India, the East India Company, through people like George Everest and the Survey of India, they could map India to the minutest detail to their heart's content. And they were safe and, 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 and there was no challenge to them. But the British being British had this insatiable um, thirst for, for knowledge what was Afghanistan like and what was Tibet like? But it was not only the, the thirst for, for, for knowledge, but it was also that the great game was being played out at the same time. And so, you know, the East India Company, the, the, the commanders of, 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 of the British Army there and, and in, and in um, Great Britain as well, wanted these maps. So how to go and map, for example, Afghanistan, how to map Tibet. At the time, it was simply too dangerous for Europeans to go into those countries, especially even even with a large escort. And um, and often they were just killed out of hand, as I mentioned, because they were Christians. Um, and even in disguise, when they were found out, they were killed. So it was too dangerous. And the British forbade the Survey of India and its officials to to map outside. So then there was a, there was a captain in the Survey of India called. Thomas Montgomery. And when he was mapping Kashmir, he noticed that there was a lot of Indian traders who would actually were able to freely cross into Tibet, even though Tibet was supposedly forbidden. And, and these, these people were the Bhotias who, who lived in the who were the hills people who lived on the border between India and um, and Tibet, for example, and the same around India and Nepal. And so he had this idea. Well, he thought, well, if they can if they can cross the border freely to trade, what if we were able to train some of these men to secretly survey the country and bring back the data that we could then at the Survey of India headquarters in Dehradun, we we could then create these maps. And so that's how the pundits were born. And um, you know, so what happened was that. Really, in a way, there were two groups of pundits. There were a number of Muslim pundits who really went to the Muslim areas of, of Afghanistan and um, you know Persia, and then also into Turkmenistan, Turk, Turkestan, sorry, as well. You know, um, and these were all sort of Muslim Muslim areas, and um, and and they were relatively safe from that perspective as well. Whereas there was a, there was a, a number of Hindu pundits as well, and these were the Bhotias who came from what is today, and forgive my pronunciation, but it's Kumon and Gwara. Warlal, um, those areas of northern India, and these were Bhotias, and so they were they were um, Hindus and 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 sometimes Buddhists as well, and they were able to go into Tibet, and Tibet was the great unknown. It was, and particularly Lhasa. So many people had tried to get to Lhasa. It was the ultimate prize in a way. It was the forbidden city, and Tibetans and the Tibetan border guards, you know, were absolutely adamant they would let nobody in to Lhasa. So the pundits were able to do that, and then to map all the way through across Tibet and almost into China as well. So um, if you could tell us about, uh, if, if time permits, a, a brief story about uh, one of the pundits that you think audience might like uh, to have you know, heard as a highlight. As a highlight. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about one of the pundits who was actually one, perhaps one of the lesser known pundits, and his name was Kintu. And so Kintu was illiterate. And so unlike the other pundits, he was never trained as a pundit um, to begin with. And for example, he could not take measurements and and he could not, well, he, he was basically, he couldn't, he couldn't write and make notes. And so he was sent as an assistant to another pundit and they went into Tibet to complete a survey that some pundits prior to them had completed. And um, what happened was the, the pundit who was who, who was in charge, who was a lama, actually sold Kintu into slavery. 
when they were in Tibet. And so, so Kintu was, a, was really um, enslaved for a number of months. When he finally found freedom, instead of making a dash back for home, he decided to continue the mission that they were given. And so the, the key mission that they had at the time was that there was this great mystery around the Sangpo River, which was the main river of Tibet, and the Brahmaputra. And the question was, did the Sangpo flow into the Brahmaputra and were they the one and same rivers? Or for example, did the Sangpo, when it came around Tibet, did it go into, for example, the Irrawaddy River and through Burma? Or did it go through the Salween? Or even did it go into China? And, and so there was this great mystery at the time, and, and many people were trying. So what the backup plan was, was that if Kintup and the Lama, who, who, was, who was the key pundit, the whole idea was to get into Tibet and simply follow the river down and keep following the river till it reached the sea. And the idea being, well, if, if they followed it all the way into India and then realized it was the Brahmaputra, there it was proven. They had a backup plan. And the backup plan was that if they weren't able to do that, they would cut 500 logs, which were, which were about a foot long. And, and they had a drill and they would drill into those logs and put in, into that a small capsule with a bit of paper in it. And they would throw them into the river. And then on the Indian side, just where the, before the Brahmaputra went down onto the plains, there'd be people standing there and they would keep a lookout for these logs. And of course, if the logs were thrown, thrown in Tibet and they appeared in the Brahmaputra, that was proven as well too. So that was their backup plan. So what Kintu decided when he, um, when he was able to free himself from slavery is to continue the mission. And he went and, he went and cut 500 logs, sent a message to the, um, to the powers that be in, in, in the survey of India that on a particular day, I'm going to start putting these logs into the river. And please keep a watch for it. Now, you have to imagine from the time Kintu and the Lama started out, we're not talking about three years later, perhaps. And of course, in that time, the Survey of India had given up waiting, waiting even for the backup plan of the log to do. Kintu didn't know any of this. And he was illiterate as well, too. Yet he was so dedicated that after getting that message to the Survey of India, which, by the way, the message never even re reached, reached the the um, the captain who, who was who was actually um, running these these agents in a way because he had long ago left and gone back to um, Great Britain where he actually died. Kintu actually threw those five hundred logs in and then made his way back to India. And when he came back, it was four years later. And um, and his dedication was, I think, really one of the highlights of not only the book but of but of the pundits themselves. So did the logs reach with the Brahmaputra? The logs did because because um, obviously they were the, the one and same river, but there was nobody there to see it happen. So oh. in a way, the backup plan didn't work either. And so when when um, Kintup came back, the question in a way was still not quite answered. By that stage, there were other explorers that were happening and, and it was close to proven then. And this was mm. almost in a way the final proof. And in a way they were unsuccessful, but to me the highlight is the dedication of the man. Absolutely. So... A question around uh, the great game and, and what you call the tyranny of distance. Uh, while all of this was happening uh, with the exploration, uh, you discussed some of the hurdles with communications between London and Calcutta. Okay. And uh, if you can highlight a bit about how um, that was. And uh, one of the other questions is, um, Given if that kind of, given the technology that we have today, 
um, you know, this is this is uh, probably a little outside the purview of the book. But given the technology of the, today we have, how has um, cartography and exploration changed magnanimously over, say, these past uh, hundred years? Um, that that probably has you know how how is it completely transformed? Yeah, um, yeah. If you could highlight a bit about that. Okay. Well, well to start with, you know, in the eighteen hundreds, um, to get a message from from Great Britain to India and to get a reply back could take almost two years, because it all depended upon the monsoons, you know, and the sailing the sailing of of of, of ships and getting a reply back and the whole vagaries of sailing at the time. So, so what happened then, and, and, and this isn't not only my book, but, but, but affected you know, the whole administration of India was that you know, the East India Company officials who were based in India had to make decisions themselves. And, and, and once those decisions were made, often they, were, they could not be changed. For example, they would go to war you know, with, 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 with Indian kingdoms. And, and, and given that it took a reply roughly two years, well, you know, it was all done and dusted um, uh, before that happened. So they had great powers, those officials within India. About, I think it was 1869, when the Suez Canal was opened, suddenly instead of taking, you know, um, over a year to maybe two years, you know, you, you could get a sailing within two months. And so, so as these times were shortened, the government, the government in Great Britain had much greater control about what was happening in India. And then soon after that, once a submarine cable was linked, you know, and basically there was a telegraph, well, it was a matter of minutes. So the, so the result of all of that was that Great Britain, which, you know, in that time, India was obviously becoming, you know, more and more the jewel in its crown and, and, and more and more was Britain dependent on on the wealth generated from it, you know, they had a much greater say now as well in India. And, 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 and after that, you know, it was a matter of once the telegraph was in and the submarine link was in, well, well then they had much more control. To answer your, your other question, well, you know, just as I suppose, just as in, you know, the need of an army in a strange land is a map, you know, people will say the need in, 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 in governance and warfare is communications. You know, communications is, is, is critical. And today, you know, those communications happen through um, satellites and, and, and global positioning systems, et cetera, et cetera. I think all of that does is just, you know, whereas, whereas 100 years ago, you know, the months counted, now the seconds count, you know, in terms of decisions made or, or actions taken. Absolutely. Um, so before we uh, end up the conversation, a couple of questions about, um, you know, uh, what are we looking forward as for your next work? As Do you have any current projects that you're working on? Uh, any project that we are looking forward to for publication? It, yes, actually, yes. And um, my next book will be published in February next year. So, so I'm very close to it now. And um, yeah, and um, so just trying to finalize a publisher in the US and UK, but but we already have Penguin Random House um, in India who, who will publish the book. And the book is about the Silk Road. If you recall, I, I said early on, um, one of the things I did was, was, was backpack the Silk Road from Istanbul through to Xi'an um, some years ago. And so really, it's, it's one of my other passions other than around exploration and mapping around Central Asia. 
is also about the Silk Road. And so this book is about, about the Silk Road. All right, that, that's great. Um, so one of the questions that we usually ask at the conclusion of our interview is, uh, you know, you come from a background of independent research. Um, and uh, we would like, uh, if, if there are people in our audience who would like to know about, uh, what would you suggest for someone who's coming from a field that is, um, you know, who have not been part of the traditional school mm. of uh, research or writing or, or in a way who's not had a background, but who are really keenly interested as a passion um, to work in, say, history or to writing a book um, that includes a good amount of research. What would you suggest to people like that? Where should they start? And, uh, you know, what shouldn't they be discouraged by? Yeah, well, to take that, that last piece first, yes, I, I don't think you need to be discouraged. I think if you have a passion for a topic, as long as you, you know, you're just a reasonably intelligent person, and I think most of us are, I think independent research is nowhere near as hard as what it may seem from afar. And I think once you start to apply yourself to a specialist area, I was also very pleasantly surprised how quickly um, I was able to uh, really understand the history and, 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 and the technicalities around that. I think I would say the, the greatest thing I would say is to read and read a lot about the area that you want to specialize in. Because only through reading and understanding from one book to another, you know, looking at the references at the end of one book and, and understanding and then finding the others, can you push ahead? I mean, it is so much easier now with, you know, with the internet being as good as it is. And so, for example, I mean, one example is, you know, the whole academia.edu website, you know, where there's so many research papers that are available for free and, 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 and really downloadable e easily. In fact, I would say that one of, one of the issues really is that there's almost too much information, you know, and, and it, would be, it would be easy to constantly research and not start writing. And, and I, I would say that to answer your last question about what would my advice be is to do both things. Because just by the way, if you research seems daunting, writing is, can be even more so. And, and especially if you're writing for the first time, if you're an independent researcher who's then starting to write, especially I'm talking about where you're writing for the general reader rather than for academic writing. The only way I think to learn is, is, um, is to try and learn as you go, you know, making your own mistakes and, and getting good feedback from, from people. Um, so yeah, so both those things, I would say to, it's not as hard as it seems, but you must get started. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful conversation, Diaz. It, it was uh, amazing and we're really looking forward to engage with your uh, upcoming new book and uh, we hope to have you on the podcast again for for the same. Um, before, um, uh, there's, there's a question that I forgot to ask was uh, about uh, what do you think might be one of the key relevances of your work um, in our current world and uh, you know why do you think is it important for us to engage um, with such an understanding uh, of, of how uh, it is important for um, cartography mapping of a certain land mm. and, and history in general why do you think mm. uh, your yeah. book has relevance mm. here? Well I think if I, I'll just look at the great game 
is 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 just such a um, it's such a topical example. You know, um, the British invaded Afghanistan, fought three wars there. You know, um, with really unhappy endings, and yet we didn't learn from that when you know the Russians then went in. And 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 look what's happened in the last few months. You know, I mean, after uh, alliance, you know, led by the U.S., have now left Afghanistan yet again. So the third major sort of power and and that that war the uh, uh, that that has just finished was the longest war that the united states has ever been involved in do we learn <laughs> it seems not you know um you know there's that that is in my mind is really a sort of a, a very contemporary example of why even reading um you know contemporary and, and, and popular history can teach us a lot if if we choose to learn yeah absolutely uh, so thank you uh, so much Sheria for joining us this was a wonderful conversation and we've come to the end of it uh, we were really happy to have you and again look forward to having you again on the podcast and all the best for your publication and uh, we wish you uh, the best the best thank you okay thank you very much Omar and, and thanks to your listeners as well and um, yeah the pleasure was all mine thank you Thank you everyone for tuning into this conversation with Riyaz Deen. We really hope you enjoyed this and if you did please consider subscribing to our channel and podcast for more such amazing content. There's a series of such amazingly curated interactions with authors and scholars on the history of the subcontinent. Check out our website www.indiacolonized.com for more blogs and podcasts exploring the tales of India's contemporary history. Do follow us on our social media sites for more exciting updates. Until next time, stay safe and stay curious.